You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. That's so good to see all of you today. Well, when I do weddings, uh, I like to use a cheesy dad one-liner, right? All the dads in the room will love this. And the one-liner goes like this, right? When... Sorry, in order to keep your marriage brimming with love and the proverbial wedding cup, whenever you're wrong, admit it. And whenever you're right, just keep your mouth shut. And that's kind of the response I get. You know, it's like obligatory laughter. It's not that funny. Well, today, we're gonna be talking about perhaps one of the hardest texts in the entire Bible. And it has everything to do with this little word called submission. And now all the husbands of the room are like, oh, I'm so glad we came today, baby. I'm so glad we're here. Before anybody in here gets anxious or concerned, what I want to do today is show you that I will almost guarantee the vast majority of us have a misconception about what the word means, where it comes from, and what we ought to do with it. So everybody at home, we're really glad you're here. If you are listening down the road and not just watching this right now, this next part may be hard for you to get, but I'm going to give you a chance to just kind of go online later. You could tune into the first couple minutes and get it. I found this amazing cartoon this week, and I thought, oh, this is perfect as a setup for where we are today. So here's the cartoon. It's got a guy cutting a branch and he looks at his wife and he says, before you start talking, woman, just remember when I need your opinion, I'll ask for it. Anybody else see the problem here? (laughs) So when we tend to think of submission in the home, we tend to have this view of a strong, dominant patriarchal man who's just going to let everybody else know what the truth is and how they ought to deal with it. In this situation, he's going to end up in a bad place real fast, isn't he? Well, let us try to unpack this a little bit today. I joked with one of our staff members as I'm coming through the hallway because God gave me ample opportunity to practice today's message all weekend. And there came a point because my wife already knew what the topic was about and I kind of had to laugh and go, oh, I'm so using this this weekend. You don't think that's that funny. Well, you will. So yesterday, yesterday, my kids went and grabbed microwave popcorn out of the cabinet because I think it was two weeks ago, I used an illustration about being at a mentor's of mine house when I was a young single guy and he and his wife were fighting and I was joking about, oh, Go get you some popcorn and sit and watch the fight and learn about what they're doing. And my kids are in the corner egging us on. They went and got popcorn so they could look at us and say, well, this is good. That's it. You can't help them. There's There's no coming back. And my wife and I are having this really stupid little spat, especially yesterday. We're both tired. It's been a long weekend. We're trying to get some things done. There's some stuff we got to nail down and, and our schedules aren't aligning and our ideas aren't aligning and everything's not lining up. And I have in the back of my head this whole message and it's not what you think. And she's got in the back of her head this whole message. And there were multiple times that we were able to alleviate the pressure just a little bit and say, all right, let's remind ourselves of everything that we know is true because I'm going to stand up and not be a hypocrite tomorrow about this message. So if you've ever had a spat with someone you love, today's message is really just for you. 
When the Bible talks about submission, when God talks about submission, he doesn't mean compromise. It's not the same thing. Now, that's important because yesterday, as my wife and I were having this debate about what, how things ought to go and the way they ought to look and everything like that, the way compromise tends to work, I had an attorney friend tell me this once. He said, Matt, I know that I've done my job well if at the end of a legal process, both parties are miserable. That's compromise. Compromise is you get a little bit of what you want, I get a little bit of what I want, but at the end, nobody really got what they want, but we can at least move on and say, yeah, but I got that. And it becomes a way to further divide us so we can stand our ground instead of unite us and bring us closer together. Let's take a look in the Bible about where everything went sideways with this whole thing. Now, I realize if you're new to this thing called faith, if you're new to this thing called Christianity, this is like jumping into the deep end quickly, but I know that there's a word for you in here. So please just give me the chance, though I'm gonna say some awkward things for both men and women and both children and their parents. Give me the chance to finish the message all the way to the end, all the way after communion before you fully evaluate the whole message. So just stick with me and just see if anything of what I'm saying rings true with you. So in the very beginning, God made them male and female. He made Adam and he made Eve. He made the woman and he put the two together and the two, it says, were naked and had no shame. There was a unity and a beautifulness about them that they could be comfortable and safe in each other's presence and there was nothing to divide them. And shortly after that, Eve sinned first, and then she led Adam into sin. And what's fascinating, without opening a theological can of worms, I don't have time to unpack right now, the Bible consistently holds Adam accountable for sin. And it says that the sin was passed from generation to generation through Adam. So I say all of that because even though Eve sinned first, don't point a finger at Eve. It's not today's message. The point is all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But something got lost in that moment. God comes down out of heaven, walks in the garden as he often does, which is such a beautiful picture of Jesus coming down out of heaven and to walk among us as well. And as he's walking in the garden, he sees that he can't find Adam and Eve. They're hiding. Why are they hiding? They were naked and had no shame, but now they have disobeyed God and the gaze of God is upon them. So he comes down and he has an accountability conversation with discipline involved for Adam, for the one who tempted and deceived them, and for Eve. And part of his conversation to Eve looks like this, Genesis chapter three, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. One of my Old Testament professor, somebody said, yes. My Old Testament professor in Bible college said, have you ever watched an animal give birth and noticed that it's a fairly painless process? It's not that there is a discomfort evolved, but the horse falls out and they move on and they're frolicking in the field together. Not so for a woman. There's something about this that rings true. Even if you don't even believe the Bible, there's something about this. So you look at the rest of creation and go, yeah, why is that different? Now, keep watching here. He says, with painful labor, you will give birth to your children. And I think this is both literal, obviously, and also deeply spiritual. How many mothers have ached over their children's decisions? Some of you in this room and at home. And then he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Yeah. Aren't you glad you chose today to come to church? Couple, hey, That's always gonna be one. Okay, listen, real quick. Two things. Notice, this comes after sin, not before. In other words, 
the brokenness that exists in the home between a husband and a wife is a direct byproduct of something deeper being broken. It was broken when the world turned away from God. What exactly does this mean? Well, this is an extremely complex phrase in Hebrew, but I want you to note the word desire. I'm gonna show you two other translations and I just want you to know real quick, so those of you who are into this kind of thing, I went and looked up about 10 different translations. They all come back in one of these three camps. So I'm just gonna show you three of them, but there are many different translations. You can go look for some yourself, but they're all in the same ballpark, but they say it differently and it has some nuances and it's because it's a hard phrase to translate from Hebrew into English. Here it is in the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That's interesting, but he shall rule over you. Notice the word desire again. We'll come back to that. Genesis 3.16, the New Living Translation. It's called a dynamic translation. It's not intended to be as literal or as rigid as, say, the ESV, but it says, and you will desire to control your husband. (laughs) At least one woman in the room went, amen. (laughs) And he will rule over you. This translation, I, I like the way it says it in English because it gives what I think was really going on in my home yesterday, which is really the conflict between the husband and the wife. She wants things one way, I want things another way, so who wins? Well, there's an old phrase I learned many years ago in marriage, happy wife, happy life. Because if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And everybody nervously laughs. <laughs> Let's talk about this word desire for a minute. There's this book in the Bible, and it is the most beautiful, complex book in the Bible. Here's why. And and this may be, again, deep end real quick, but it may confuse you, but stick with me. The book is called Songs of Solomon. Solomon was a king in Israel, the third king in Israel, but the one who brought unbelievable peace and prosperity to the land. Solomon was wise, gifted with wisdom by God, wise, more wise than anybody who ever walked the earth besides Jesus himself. And yet his wisdom gets him into great trouble because as you learn when you read Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he knows a lot, but he doesn't always do what he's supposed to do, which is why we're told in James, don't just be hearers of what God says, actually do what God says. It's a whole different ballgame. But Solomon writes this one book and the book reads like a love story. I did a series on it a few years ago. I'm starting to think maybe it's time to do it again because it's just such a good book. I was reading it this, for this message and going, oh, it's so good, we need this stuff. But it walks through this relationship of like dating and courting and getting married and then it shows us the, the night and the bedroom and then it shows the couple going through a fight and reconciliation and it is beautiful and it's been said that Hebrew people wouldn't even let their young children read it before the age of 13 because it is graphic if you understand Hebrew poetry. And the graphic section is actually like right in the middle, Solomon, Songs of Solomon, chapter seven, where they're um, about to share in marital gifts with each other. And he starts at her head and he describes her body in Hebrew language from head to toe. And it is this beautiful moment. And she's standing there before him, just receiving his praise and his love before she is about to offer herself as a gift to him. I hope you're all tracking with me. I'm doing my best. This is next week's message, by the way, in some form or fashion. So you may not want to have your children tune in. Okay, so then she says, In Songs of Solomon, chapter seven, verse 10, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. 
And the word desire here is the same word used in Genesis chapter three. In fact, the word's really only used three times, this exact word in the Old Testament. And the other time that it's used, it's used to remind us of sin. Sin is crouching at your door, but you're gonna have to master it. There's a desire at your door and you're gonna have to master it. And I find that fascinating, those three uses of the same word. One is it's something to be mastered. Two, it's uh, almost like part of the curse. You're gonna have this desire, but you're not gonna be able to find a fulfillment in it. And then three, here. And why is this fascinating? Well, scholars separate into two camps. Songs of Solomon is a love story from uh, dating, kind of engagement, to betrothal, to marriage, and beyond. And then others say, no, 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 it's an allegory between Christ and the church. I say, after studying it all very, very deeply, I actually think it's both. There's a reason why we're gonna look at it today, but in essence, it's about love. When love is perfect, what is it? Love on earth, marriage on earth, is supposed to be a reflection of God himself. The two, that's four, the two shall become one. God is a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The goal of biblical love is oneness. That's the purpose. It's like, imagine two things that are separate, right? But the goal is to bring them together. Now, can I take these apart? You've tried before, right? <laughs> you ever accidentally had the tape fall over on itself? Certain tapes you can undo. Duct tape, not so much. Now, if I play with this long enough, I could probably get it separated, but even, maybe not. But if I could, I'm gonna lose something in the process. That's the idea here. The two are no longer two. The two are now one. So wherever the one goes, the other goes with it. And while, yes, I could take them and ah, rip them apart, there's gonna be all kinds of parts from this one on this one and this one on this one, and it's gonna be shredded. Now, what I'm not saying, and I'm gonna be very clear, what I'm not saying is if you have been through a divorce, this is not a message about divorce or anything like that, but if you've been through that, I'm not saying there's a part of you that's shredded and therefore you're not worthy. This is a piece of tape. You are a human being. They're not a one-to-one -one correlation. Do not mishear this analogy. But the analogy is a good one in that the two were supposed to be bonded together in such a profoundness that it actually points to God himself, which is why that passage in Songs of Solomon is so powerful because when she is safest in the world, when she is most loved and adored and appreciated in the world, she's in her husband's presence and she's able to say, I am my beloved and he is mine. His desire is for me. See, when God describes marriage and he talks about submission, that's the goal. That's the goal. That each would feel desired in the relationship. Wanted, adored, precious, special, loved, cared for, provided for, nurtured. And everything that gets wrapped up in that 
But the problem is, as Genesis already told us, we live in a broken world. So pick whichever translation of the complex Hebrew you wanna pick. The whole point is there's complexity in our marriage relationships today as a result, right? And you feel it and you know it, whether you're a Christian or not. There's something about this you go, yeah, I know, I can't explain it. The good I wanna do, I don't do. <laughs> the thing I don't wanna do, I keep doing. And so do they, it's broken. Where does all this come from? Well, this analogy, this picture, comes actually from God himself. I don't wanna show this to you real quick. So I wanna show you a passage in the Bible where Paul describes for us, what does it mean if we were to actually live out oneness the way that God intended for us to do that? Philippians chapter two, verse five, here's what it says. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, what I want you to hang on to here, this is like a deep theological concept, but I want you to get this. Jesus is equal to God. He's in the same nature God. This is what we call the triune nature of God, the fact that God is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three God, all three one. The Bible does not refer to God as them or they, but as he. And what's broken in our world is we have no concept of this. The church is supposed to be one, one body, many parts. Marriage, same thing. This is pictures of holiness. So here we have this idea here that God is one and Jesus is God, but Jesus is different, right? But he didn't take his difference and use it to his own advantage. Instead, well, I guess let me point this out first. Unity means equal but different. That's what I want you to hang on to. Equal but different. When God made the male and female in the garden, he made them different, but they were both reflective of God. There are certain things innate in woman that reflect God that can't be reflected without man. And same thing for man. It takes man and woman to reflect God fully and completely. Paul goes on in Philippians 2, he says this, verse 7. Rather, he, this is Jesus, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So Jesus, even though he's equal to God the Father, he makes himself nothing, becomes a servant by becoming human like us. And then he goes on in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, this is so foundational for what we need to talk about in marriage because Jesus is our example of what it looks like when it's right. So even though Jesus is equal to God, he doesn't use his equalness to overthrow or to challenge or to push up against. Instead, he uses his equalness to love and to serve. Early in my marriage, my wife and I were um, having some tension We've learned many, many lessons in our 21 years of marriage. And I'll never forget, uh, we were bumping up against one of these. I think it was our first year, might've been our second year of marriage. God had brought a, a single man into my life as a mentor. Now, his name was Chris, actually his name was James, but his name was James Chrisfield. Everybody called him Chris Chrisfield. But Chris, he, uh, he'd never been married and I was pouring out my heart to him. And I'll be honest, what I really wanted was Chris to tell me I was right, my wife was wrong. Anybody ever had one of those kind of conversations with a mentor or a friend or a parent? And Chris looked at me and he goes, Matt, I don't, I'm not there. And I thought, that is so wise. He's like, I'm not gonna pick sides. But I know this, 
He said, what if you made it your goal just to outserve each other? And I was like, that's a, that's a really good goal for her to take on. <laughs> and he took me to Philippians chapter two and he said, look, Jesus, though equal to God, remember you and Rachel are equals. He made it his goal not to use his equality to lift himself up, but instead he humbled himself to serve. Now, what if you were to go home and just serve her, meet her needs? What if you were to go home and care for her the way Christ cares for the church? Now, this is what's ringing in my head while we're having this stupid little spat yesterday the whole time, and I have her permission to say this. And I'm sitting here processing all this and going, my job is to outserve her. My job isn't to get what I want. My job isn't to win this battle. My job isn't to be right. My job is to put her in her place. My job is to remind her of all the passages that I'm about to read to you. My job is to outserve her. The way that I win in this relationship is if I serve more than she does. And could you imagine a marriage where both people are trying to do that? Now I realize it doesn't always work that way, but that's the goal. And with that in mind, Paul gives some of the best and hardest advice he gives anybody anywhere. In Ephesians chapter five, he says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit, follow each other's lead. Then he unpacks that. But you have to understand, everything that comes next comes out of this foundational verse. Submit to one another. This is what I call the principle of mutual submission. The principle of mutual submission. It's not give and take, it's give and give. And there is a huge difference between those two things. Now, I stole that quote from a guy named Nick Lavallee. He actually put it on my Facebook page this week. For those of you who are engaged in that conversation, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Mutual submission. I submit to you, you submit to me, we submit to each other for the betterment of the thing we're working on. This happens all over Kingsway, by the way. When I come on stage, did you know that Amos is my boss? If he tells me stand right here and put my stand right there, I don't argue with him. I've given him the authority over this stage. We come together and we talk through the worship set. If I really have a problem with a song or the order, I'll suggest some things or I'll say, I don't want peace with that. And we make changes, but he picks the songs. He leads the worship team. I make suggestions time to time. I really like this song. He usually looks at me and he goes, that would have been great 10 years ago, Matt. So the whole point, is that there's mutual submission as we work out the relationship because the church and the home are supposed to be very similar in this. It's not give and take, that's compromise. It's give and give. You with me? But now he goes on and he says this really hard thing, so stick with me and I'll unpack it for you. Ephesians chapter five, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands, sorry, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. A few things, ladies, hang on here. A few things. Number one, notice that it says, as you do to the Lord. Your husband is not the Lord. Those are two separated things. The goal here is as you trust God, God is leading him and you're following your husband. This is because you love the Lord, because you trust the Lord, you're following the Lord by following your husband's lead. But notice that's not the only thing. Notice it says, uh, husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. 
This is the focus of the rest of the passage. But we get way too hung up on this word right here. And let's be honest for a minute. The reason that we do is because this word has been abused. And you know people like this. What submission is not, I made a few of these. Submission does not mean you don't speak up or challenge. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he goes into the garden on his face and he's crying. He's so anxious about it challenging God. So if Jesus is our guide, we're trying to follow his lead and do it the way that he did it, he challenged the father. Wives, that doesn't mean don't ever speak up, don't ever challenge. Are you with me? It also doesn't mean accept abuse, physical, emotional, or spiritual. Jesus even tells a story. It's a parable. It's probably not a real situation, but it probably is a real situation. It's about a persistent widow. And this persistent widow is being abused. And she goes time and time and time and time again to the judge to get relief. And finally, the judge is worn out by her coming to him. And he's like, fine, I'll take care of your situation. Just leave me alone. And Jesus says, if that's what an unrighteous judge does, how much more will your father in heaven? Again, the whole idea here is not that you just accept this terrible, painful, evil situation for what it is. No, 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 no. That is not healthy. And we've seen, just like in that cartoon I showed at the beginning, we've seen way too much abuse done in this word. I've watched men try to control and manipulate their wives in this church over my 10 plus years of being here. And it's not okay. And I'm more than happy to look a man in the face and say, you stop it. It's not okay. Also, to submit does not mean to endure egregious sinful behavior with no hope or help. So if your spouse is addicted to something and they are ruining their life, you need an outlet. It should be your pastor and your elders to go to and say, I need help. Their behavior is destroying me. It's crushing us. It is killing us. And secrecy is your enemy. So submitting doesn't mean hiding. It means to follow, to support, to encourage Paul goes on in verse 24, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I was having this conversation about this message uh, with some friends of mine, Chris and Danielle, and some of you will know who they are. And uh, they got to sharing a story with me. And I was like, guys, can I share that Sunday? That's so good. So they wrote out their story. And so I'm just gonna read you their words about a way that they've had to kind of wrestle through submission. One story that highlights our growth with this idea of submission and leadership in the homes is when we were discussing the need for a multi-appliance purchase. It happened about six or seven years ago now. We had a front loader washing machine that was only a few years old. We'd bought a new matching set at that time and were disappointed when we could not get the smell to go away from the washing machine. Been there, done that. We were using cleaning agents, taking it apart to clean, running bleach through it. You name it, we did it. But the smell remained and it was taking a toll. Chris started researching a new washing machines and proposed a new matching set. I pushed back on that as the dryer was working fine. We went back and forth on this for a few weeks, never really coming to an agreement. Shortly after this, our dishwasher stopped working. So now we're hand washing dishes, juggling two full-time jobs, two young kids, pets, our marriage, plus other activities, and this additional chore was really not helping the stress level. 
Chris was now researching dishwashers in addition to the matching washing machine dryer set. You can see where this is going. Budget-wise, we had not planned on three appliances needing replaced at the same moment of time. We were not going to miss a house payment or struggle to pay for food so we could technically like afford it, but it was going to hurt a little bit. I was digging my heels in saying, we didn't need the dryer, let's focus on what we truly need. And he was making his case to get all three and try to get a deal. Now, quick background for us, neither of us grew up with abundance. We each had family struggles and didn't different examples of how to spend and save money. My parents didn't have much to spend. There were four kids, and we joked they'd take five months just to pick out curtains. Growing up, he doesn't remember talking about how to manage a budget. So when we became adults, we each had ideas in our head what it should look like financially. He thought, as adults, we should have matching appliances. I came at it from, let's not spend it, let's save it perspective. And he felt like I was taking that need or goal away from him. And I felt like he was not making a wise choice. Can everybody in here relate with this? So good. I'm so glad they're sharing their stories and not me. All right. I remember we had many heated conversations. One in particular comes to mind. It was in the evening. The dishes were hand washed. The kids had been put to bed and Chris had gone out to the garage. I was struggling because we were talking in our small group here at the church about to submit and let my husband lead our family. But I was not behind the idea of spending all this money. Professionally, I was the boss at my job. I made the call on many levels for, for our organization, was trusted to make sound financial decisions. Now I'm at home and I'm supposed to support my husband and follow him. How do I do that when I don't agree? She says, I was so conflicted. Back at this moment, I stepped out into the garage and re-engaged in the conversation. We went back and forth for a while. I finally remember saying to him something to the effect of, I am trying to let you lead our family. And if this is what you think you need, we need, do it. I will support it. And then I walked back in the house, forcefully closed the door. <laughs> she may or may not have meant everything she said, but she wanted to mean it, right? I wish I could say I was all in on that comment, but my heart and head were not 100% aligned. But I felt convicted to take that step and be at peace with it. Now, from Chris's perspective of that time, he looks back now and he says he was acting very selfish. He wanted so much to buy the things and look the part of adulthood. He had in his mind that it overshadowed leading his family and his wife well. However, in the moment, Chris just wanted his wife to support his decision. In fact, he needed her support in order to embrace his role as leader of the home. We ultimately did purchase all three appliances, Chris ended up selling the old appliances, one working and the other two for parts to help recoup some of the costs. But this moment was a turning point for both of us in our marriage. I was able to submit my personal want to control and lead my husband family. He was able to submit to lead our family and his wife. Through it, we grew exponentially as a couple. We still have our moments. There are times he doesn't want to lead and I get frustrated. There are times I try to take the reins and he gets frustrated but we are healthier in that we could talk about it and understand that because we love each other first, we can submit to each other. Mutual submission. Listen, the model for submission is Jesus Christ himself. The more you understand that, the more you will spend your time reading the gospel stories, the Bible story, and going, man, what would Jesus do in this situation? How would Jesus show love if he were in my shoes? 
If Jesus were married to my spouse, how would he reflect that love if, to them right now? That's why Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, 25, and he says this, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. There's a lady named Liz Curtis Higgs. She's wrote a number of amazing books. As I understand her testimony, you should check this out, ladies. She wrote a book called like Bad Girls of the Bible. She was once single and very angry at men. And a friend of hers invited her to a sister church of ours called Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And they just happened to show up and guess what the text is for the day. And her friend is like, oh, great. Of all the Sundays that I could randomly pick to have my friend here. And at the end of the message, Bob Russell, who was preaching that day, threw down exactly what Paul says here. And Liz Curtis Higgs looked at her friend and said, if I could ever find a man to love me like that, I'd have no problem following his lead. When you get past the word submit to the wives and you get to the point where it says husbands love your wives in the same way Jesus loved the church, he literally died to serve her. All of a sudden you realize the burden on the husband is actually greater. And I would even go further. The wife gets doubly loved because Jesus already loves the church and wives, women, you're already part of the church. So he's already taking care of you. But if your husband is being like Jesus to you also, you get doubly loved. Which is how you could come along and say, my husband's, my beloved's desire is for me. I feel safe. I feel cared for. I feel protected. I feel listened to. I feel my needs are met. Imagine a home where that were able to be true. He goes on and he says, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In other words, this is all theology now. Paul is trying to say Jesus went out of his way to fix what was broken himself. He didn't put the burden on us to save us. He took the burden on himself to fix the problem. And then he goes on and he says, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. It's this whole idea here. They're one. Where does one stop and the other one start? I don't know. They're one. See, if you love your own body, then you will love your spouse. Husbands, you will love your wife. If you make sure your needs are met, you will go out of your way to make sure that their needs are met. And the whole time during the spat yesterday, I'm sitting here thinking, if Jesus were to love my spouse, what would he do different than what I'm doing? And I did not hit a home run. I struck out a few times, I hit a few foul balls, I bunted once or twice, but by God's grace, we're great. And then he goes on, he says, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. He says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. What? What in the world are you talking about, Paul? You're so weird sometimes. He's like, no, 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 no. This whole picture of marriage was supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. 
It was supposed to be a picture of this beautiful love and nurturing and care that God gives to his body. Husbands, I need to give you a challenge. It's time for you to die, as we talked about last week, and care for your spouse. It's time for you to give up all of your wants and and needs and to meet hers. Now look, the same things I said earlier apply to her too. If she's got some addiction, something unhealthy, if she's abusive, that doesn't mean you just take it. Well, I'm serving my wife. No, 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 no. Part of loving her is removing sin. That's what Jesus did to his body. But it means when you're coming into a fight, you're not gonna rise up and use your strength and your power and your loudness or your money and your resources to overwhelm and overpower. It means you're going to submit to the lordship of Christ and say, what does my spouse need in this moment? What's really going on here? What I love about Chris and uh, Danielle's testimony is they kind of started to analyze, maybe this is years later, they started to analyze what's really going on here? What's really the drive in my heart? What's really the drive in your heart? When we can get those things on the table, you know what? We can actually find... Serve, serve scenarios. It's not compromise. It's what do you need to feel loved in this world? And Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, 33, and he says, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And a guy named Dr. Egrich and his wife wrote a book called Love and Respect, and it's so good Because in a nutshell, he says, every wife wants to be loved and every man wants to be respected. And the problem in most people's homes is he doesn't give love, so she doesn't give respect, and it creates this what we call the crazy cycle. And the only way to get off the crazy cycle is one of them has to stop. So even when he's not respected, he still gives love. And even when she doesn't feel love, she still gives respect. And if somebody will just jump off the crazy train, you could come back together again. I'm out of time. Ah. But there's like one last thing I need to say because this is about mutual submission and it extends from the father, the husband, sorry, to the wife, but then it extends from the father to the children because you're building a home together. And so Paul goes on in chapter six, I'm gonna do this very quickly, and he says in verse four, fathers, do not exasperate your children. I always think of Donald Duck. Like what in the world is exasperate mean, right? He says, instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The New Living Translation uses the word provoke, which I think is a beautiful word here. Dad's in the room. Can you just be honest for a second? Is it not really easy to provoke your children? It doesn't even, my wife has to look at me on a regular basis to go, Matt, stop. Quit being one of the children. I think I'm being funny, I think it's a joke, I think it's whatever it is, but the reality is I'm not leading them. The point is, if I'm exasperating them, then I'm not leading them to the Lord. There's a brokenness in our relationship. Men, God is calling you to step up, to be the leader of your home spiritually. You may go, I don't even know how to do that. Great, then go to our Connect Hub when you're done here and let us start to walk you into that process. But don't shuck that responsibility to someone else. Then he goes on and he gives the hardest advice ever. By the way, this never dies. Ephesians chapter six, verse one through three. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you, that you may enjoy long life on the earth. The first commandment with a promise. If you honor your parents, God promises you a healthy life. Let that sink in. Your relationship changes when you get married. You leave your parents, you become one with your spouse, but you never stop honoring, ever. 
Children in the room, are you honoring your parents in the way you care for them and speak to them? Are you leading up by loving them and serving them the way Jesus did to God the Father? Does anybody else have a problem with this message? Because I don't know about you, but I've, in the last 48 hours, it's been hard for me. Really hard for me. And the only way that I can get it done is because God lives in me. I do not have what it takes to do this on my own, my own flesh. I need God. And so do you. And some of you need it really bad. Listen, wherever you are right now, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus and this is striking you, we want to walk you into that. You need Jesus. You need a savior. You need a Lord. You need a mentor. And we want to provide all those things for you. Would you just text the word connect to 317-565-4911? But beyond that, somebody generously gave us money at the beginning of this year to help people in our church. So what we did is we always put money aside to help people in our church. We just decided to front load that money. We took their money and stuck it in the budget and said, what if this series strikes people and people are really in a hard place in their marriage? They're really struggling as a family. So if you just text that word, we will connect you to resources to get you the help that you need. Don't go through this alone. Be honest with yourself and let us help you. All right, we're gonna take communion now. And here's what I'm gonna ask. If you are sitting with your spouse at home or here in the room, I'm gonna ask you just to hold their hand, draw them close, wrap your arm around them, take your communion together, pray a prayer of blessing. Men, be the leader right now. Just pray a prayer of blessing. Father, bless my family. Bless my spouse, bless my children. If you're single, great, we're glad you're here. You are well-loved and cared for by God. Spend this time, imagine Jesus sitting next to you and he put his arm around you and he's holding you close and he's just praying a prayer over you. Just talk to your heavenly father. Take this bread, take this juice and come near to God. Here's the last thing I'll say. Peter actually says, husbands, if you don't do this, your prayers will be hindered. If you don't care for your wife, your prayers will be hindered. So spend this time right now caring for your spouse caring for your children so that God will hear everything else you have to say. I'll start a prayer and I'll come back up. Father God, right now, hear these words. Heal our homes, heal our hearts. And thank you, God, for this hard but true message from your word in Jesus' name. The band's gonna lead us in a song that we love around here. If you're new around here or visiting with us, um, the song may be hard for you to get at first. It's called Reckless Love. It, and the whole idea is just to, to understand and feel the weight of the love of God. That's what we all need if we're gonna come into a message like this. But before we do that, I wanna give you really good biblical advice, right, on wisdom. I'm gonna ask you to jump to, uh, I think it's verse three up there on the slides. So I'm gonna read two passages of the Bible, Philippians 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's all I'm gonna ask you to do. Here's what I, the, the mind, the perspective I want you to have. Is there anything in this that uh, God is speaking to me. He wants me to implement today in my relationship. Ready? Here we go. Therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Because love is patient, and love is kind. It does not envy, 
It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes and always 